Hey, it's Drew Horning, everybody. Barbara Comstock and I sit down for a, well, let's just say it's a deep, healing, soulful conversation. You know, she's been a teacher for 34 years. She was a teacher in my personal process. She has become synonymous with the Hoffman Institute. And I wasn't sure where the conversation was going to go, but when we started talking about the loss of her partner, Jimmy. Well, let's just say, take a deep breath, settle in, and enjoy this deeply moving and powerfully healing conversation about grief and loss and ultimately healing. Thank you, Barbara, for this powerful conversation. Welcome to Love's Everyday Radius, a podcast brought to you by the Hoffman Institute. My name is Drew Horning, and on this podcast, we catch up with graduates of the process and have a conversation with them about how their work in the process is informing their life outside of the process, how their spirit and how their love are living in the world around them, their everyday radius. Hey, everybody. Welcome to the Hoffman Podcast. Barbara Comstock is our guest today. Welcome, Barbara. Thank you. How are you feeling? Well, I'm happy to be here. I'm feeling a little nervous being interviewed. It's just something that happens to me. I've learned to live with it. Barbara, you've been a teacher for 34 years, a teacher of the Hoffman Process for 34 years. How many processes do you think that is roughly? I, I've probably taught an average of 10 over the years, sometimes less, sometimes more. And so what is that? 340. <laughs> a lot of processes. Yeah. I could go to the beginning, but I'm kind of interested in starting at the end-ish because I know you're not done teaching, and but you have mentioned that at some point in the near future, it might be your last process. What's it like to have been a teacher for 34 years? What do you notice? I notice the difference in, in the things that really grab me in the process. And what I love now is I love working with the individual students and with groups and the different feel of a group. And I love being with my colleagues. I really appreciate the relationships that develop among, you know, in a team and how we work together and support each other and can, um, I know for me, for years, I've been saying this or acknowledging this, I feel like teaching the process is a practice of love and that's a great thing to practice. So it's loving my colleagues, loving the students, loving the process. A practice of love. What's that practice like for you? Well, that also has changed over the years, but it's, um, oh, I didn't say, and also loving myself. <laughs> so, <laughs> but that's part of it. So what we're doing in the process is so much about love and connecting and, and the light, which for me over the years has come to mean love. 
there's this kind of ground of being that if we can tap into it, that is love. And so we can bring that to ourselves and to others, and we can see the kind of interconnectedness through love. So I think it brings me closer, that, that practice brings me closer to the essence of things and gives me an opportunity to um, land there and, and, and live there. Not that I don't get <laughs> pulled out of it, not that I don't get overtired or questioning myself at times, but I can come back to that ground of being. I love that, to land there and live there and come back to there, that grounded place of being. And you also talked about, and I love how you added the self-love piece, loving for you, loving your colleagues, loving the students, loving this thing called the Hoffman process, and then loving yourself as well, this practice of love. And that practice is, you know, it's not just sweet. <laughs> it's kind of, like, you know, sometimes it's fierce kind of love. It's being willing to love a person enough to risk them being upset with you, to say the things that you know, will serve another, and also to say those things to myself. So it's not, uh, I'm not finding the words, but just a sweet, everything is great kind of love. It's, a, it's, it's love can include everything, or, or the light, you could say, could include everything. All of life, it's not that that thought is bad and I don't want to think that. I've already thought it. Why should I re reject it? So to recognize that all of life and all of existence exists in that space, that's where I am now. I haven't always been there, but that's sort of what's going on for me now. Let me ask about what's going on for you now. Where are you in the chapter of your life now? Two and a half years ago, my husband died, and it was a very short time between when we, he got his diagnosis. It was three months from his diagnosis to his death, so that was quite compelling period of time. So I've been experiencing grief, and which is just, I think grief for a partner is something unimaginable until it happens and i i didn't i knew he was dying i didn't have any sense of what it would be like for me part of that grief is i've been learning so much about myself and reflecting on myself and and seeing the places i fell down and but also seeing just seeing myself and also recognizing him. But I'm, I'm kind of moving too fast right now. What I'd like to say is something very special happened in the last three months of Jimmy's life, and I, everything else kind of fell away, and, and there was that ground of love and, and forgiveness and compassion that we kept coming back to. I mean, I would get triggered or thrown off or he would or whatever, but it was never anything we got stuck in. Three months between his diagnosis and, and when you both 
came to terms with this cancer and three months later he's passed and we knew you know at first it was like what can we do and trying to find treatment or at least extend his life a little because this was happening really fast and then he decided to go into hospice then in we live in oregon and he was going to do this death with dignity but he died before that even came through so it was really fast so there was about there were several weeks a few weeks when i knew he was going to die soon and as you remember those short months those days what do you remember what image comes to your mind what was life like for the two of you during that journey most of it was very sweet i mean we were very together and connected and kind with each other you know at first we went to southern california to city of hope and so it was pretty unsettling we were staying in a hotel and then going to my brother's house that he has an hour away from there and a lot on the freeways and <laughs> so there was we were moving around a lot and getting a lot of bad news actually i felt so connected to him and just so much love and and so much, I was also having these beautiful experiences. I mean, we went to City of Hope where they are so kind. So will you share a little bit about who they are and what that experience was like for you when the two of you went there? It's a cancer hospital. It's a research hospital and in LA area. And it's centered around hope and love. I, that's my sense. They have a they have a rose garden there. They have quite a nice site, and all the doctors we worked with were so kind, and all the nurses were amazing. I remember walking out of the hospital area at one point, and I was crying because we'd just gotten bad news. And I I was walking outside. I had to get the car, and and I was crying. And this woman ran after me with a box of tissues. I mean, they're so attentive to everybody and the, i remember the doctor holding my hand when he was telling me you know what had happened in this test and i didn't want to let go <laughs> he was skillful and kind of <laughs> getting away but he was also very there when he was there i'd never been in a hospital like that you know and i'd never been cared for like that in, in a medical kind of situation. It's a beautiful place. So I felt like I was learning something about, also about how, the kind of grace that we can bring to any situation. And Jimmy and I felt so connected and loving with each other. And I remember sitting in a waiting room and there was a couple across from us and they were turned away from each other. And I felt really sad. I know it's such a hard time when someone is, you know, has a dangerous illness. But I felt sad about that, that kind of turning away. And I think Jimmy and I turned towards each other in those three months. 
He died at home. How were those final moments? Many people have never had the experience of supporting someone through their death journey. How were those as it came to an end for him? You know, with liver cancer, there can be a lot of toxins in the brain. And so for a couple of days, he'd been grouchy and treated me really strangely, strangely, you know, and ordering me around. And they even said, I, you're treating me like a servant. And I don't remember his response. But, and then something shifted in him. And that night, I actually, he got up every day and got dressed. I helped him get dressed. And, and he, so he was on the couch. And, and that night, I realized a lot had happened in the, during the day and that I wasn't going to be able to get him in the wheelchair and get him to bed. And so I called hospice and they called the fire department. And these two firemen came and got him in the wheelchair and got him into the bed. Because he was sleeping in our bed, and I slept that night in the bed with him. And then the next day, he was struggling. You know, he was having his his whole chest would get up and down, and then just cave in with his breath. And I sat with him all day, and mainly I just sat with him on the bed. And and um, and sometimes I'd just ask him if he needed anything, and and sometimes I'd say things to him, you know, you know, things like go towards the light, or if you're afraid of anything, go towards it. But mainly I, I didn't talk a lot. Sometimes I'd ask him if there was anything he wanted to say, and he'd kind of go, uh, you know, he wasn't really speaking. And then uh, my sister Connie came over. There was something we had to do. She helped me. and and then. My sister-in-law brought over dinner for us. She didn't stay. She just brought dinner over. And and I said, I'm going to go see Jimmy. And I, I went and I checked in with him and I gave him his medications and cleaned out his mouth and these things you do. And then I went and I ate these really delicious pork ribs that my sister-in-law had brought over. And then I went to see Jimmy, and he was dead. So I wasn't there when he died. I was there most of the day. But um, he took his last breath when I wasn't there. And that has been... um, You know, a point that I keep returning to, Drew, he, uh, it was, I know it was hard for him to leave me. And so I think he knew, I mean, when I went back in and I gave him his meds and I said, I'm going to go eat dinner and I'll come back after. And, you know, and he knew I wasn't going to be there for a while. So I don't know whether he chose to die then or it just happened or, but a lot of people have told me that he told them the hardest thing was going to be to leave me. So I've heard a lot of stories about 
amazing things happening. So somebody leaves the room and the person dies, but I wasn't there. Yeah. Jimmy would tell other people that one of the hardest parts about this was having to leave you. And he said to leave, you know, just to leave earth. <laughs> that was hard too, but to leave me. And, but there's this thing, this puts me in mind of this thing that happened one morning when I opened um, the bedroom curtains and I think it was smoky outside or something. And I said, Oh, not so nice. And Jimmy said, that depends on your perspective. So for him, he was savoring the world. That changed my perspective, too. It was nice. I learned a lot from him. Barbara, when you remember Jimmy, what do you remember about him? Well, it, it's sort of the same thing from when we first went for a walk from Tennessee Valley to Muir Beach and back. He wouldn't notice. I, I, he was so attentive to the physical world, actually. He'd notice the smallest thing, the most beautiful thing, a tiny blue flower growing out of the side of the path where, you know, it was like a wall carved into the hillside. And he'd notice this flower that I wouldn't notice. I mean, my background's in art, but I didn't see it. And <laughs> he, he'd notice things like that in life. And he, he took beautiful photographs, but he'd notice the shadows of things and the shadows of Venetian blinds on the wall. We took photos of those too. And so, so that's one thing, a kind of attentiveness to what is in front of you, you know, in front of him. I loved that about him. He had great vision in that way. It wasn't about the future. It was about right here. What can I see? I can see you seeing the world through his eyes and you noticing. He was really supportive to me. I mean, he really took care of me. And he always said he was going to take care of me when I was old. That didn't work out too well. But he liked that. And he was kind. I was talking to somebody this morning about him. He always carried, he'd go to the, the bank and get $2 coins. I don't know if you know, you can get a $2 coin. And they're kind of pretty and they're kind of big. And He'd carry them in his pocket, and he'd give them to people. He'd give them to street people or homeless people. But he didn't just give them coins. He talked to them, and he, he would know there's a little, um, there's a grocery store not too far from where I live, and, and there are some homeless people that are hang out around there. And he knew all their stories. It was good for me that he did that. I, I learned something about Generosity and paying attention. Barbara, how, when the next day comes and life after Jimmy begins, how do you navigate that? How do you begin to go through a day without this life partner of yours? I'm not too sure how I did the next day. 
I know I hadn't slept much. But I think what I did um, was I made a lot of space for grief and um, to feel. So what I really mean is I made a lot of space to feel what was going on inside of me and give myself permission to have those feelings and and try to i did a lot of the kind of self-compassion break you know that little bit this is a moment of suffering and all of us suffer all human beings suffer and and um, may i be kind to myself so i would hold the feeling with kindness i i wasn't trying to make it go away like it wasn't that's not the point of the self-compassion break but to be okay with with myself and be kind to myself because I really needed kindness. And I must say for months, I, I think I mainly um, got up, drank coffee and bread. And I didn't eat very much, but I did eat. And um, I'd only have a cup of coffee. I wasn't drinking coffee all day, but I would, I would, I Read there are these novels. There are these detective novels by Louise Penny that I had just that I discovered. I think after Jimmy died, and I read every single one of them. And I gave my permission, self permission, to be with my feelings and also to have these little, as I once called them, like a vacation from all of that, where I could enter into another world and. The thing about Louise Penny, those those stores, is it it's like a community, and the same people come back, and there's a warmth there, and so forth. So I had that, and then I started reaching out. At some point, I started developing more friends in Ashland. That was really nice because I was I've spent so much of my time traveling and then coming back and being with Jimmy that I only have a few friends in Ashland. So I was developing friendships and then COVID hit. That was kind of hard because I couldn't see people so much. But some of those people would go buy groceries for me and stuff because I'm in my 70s. And so it was better for me not to go to the grocery store at that point. And I just kept feeling, you know, being with my feelings and taking steps. I, and Jimmy died in August, and in December, I taught a couple of, November, December, I taught two processes and visited friends in Berkeley for Thanksgiving and for Christmas, and that was really special. I mean, that was like such a wonderful time for me. So as reaching out, one of the things in grief and and both before Jimmy died and after his the connection with people is so important for us as human beings and I would lift when I connected with a friend you know I just feel something lifting and or when Jimmy was alive connected with Jimmy so it's about connection and about allowance of feelings and making base just getting through the days in those first days just getting through them as time moved on i I even hear you reflecting on those days what slowly shifts what happens with the passage of time for you 
after Jimmy's gone? I think that for one thing, the feelings move. They still calm. I, I don't. I don't think there's any any kind of feeling that has disappeared. <laughs> I still miss Jimmy, and um, I still feel sad sometimes, or I feel so very alone, or I think I will never. You know, I will always be alone, and I, I don't know that it, any that that those thoughts are true. I don't actually believe in them, but they come up, and and so all those feelings and thoughts still arise. But I think there's just a little more space between them, and um, I wish I could explain it. It's funny; I just did an hour kind of session on this. Wait, did you lead a class or or? No, 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 with some for me. <laughs> it was for me. Oh, I see. You were a student. Huh. Yeah. So, but there's, I think there's just, I, it's like, it's, it becomes easier, but it doesn't go away. And I, I remember when I, you know, within like a week or two after Jimmy died, two different people told me, oh, it gets easier, but it, grief never goes away. And I, I was, in such intense state of grief at that point, I said, please don't tell me that. Don't talk to me about that. Because if I have to feel like this for the rest of my life, I don't know what I'm going to do. So I would tell people what I needed. There is, I mean, there are all these things I learned <laughs> like that. Like, like people don't know what to do. If People didn't know what to do. I, I was my husband had died, and they didn't know how to talk to me or what to say or or whether to say anything or whatever. And fortunately, I would tell them what I needed or didn't need, and that was a really good thing. I was happy. There, things like that are a result of all, well doing the process and then all the work I've done since then that I realized that I had some skills that other people don't have at that moment. I did feel pretty resilient. I felt a lot of things. It seemed to me that I was pretty resilient and doing really well. I think it was harder after the pandemic started because I was isolated. It, it almost felt like going back somehow, backwards somehow. But I didn't. And, you know, I wrote that, I wrote a response when David, is it David Brooks? David Brooks, the New York Times writer. He asked for people to write about it. And so I wrote something. I wrote about Jimmy dying and about um, what was going on in my life and what it was like to be isolating and all of that. And I don't know. I just wrote it. I didn't edit it, actually, which is unusual for me. And then on the bottom, I wrote, so this is my grief mind, and, and my rational mind says this, and I wrote a list, and I just put it in there, and then I emailed the whole thing, and then I got the, a call from someone, at, from his, somebody he, who works with him from the New York Times, and that they liked what I had written and would like to use some of it in the article. 
I was so excited. I mean, you cannot imagine. I was just thrilled. I grew up in New York. I was like the New York Times. And I was thrilled and excited. And like, I couldn't believe this was happening to me. And I remember going for a walk and feeling just like on top of the world in that moment. And and um, joyful and and uh, it was really cool, you know. That was so cool. And the next day, it was it was still a, a wonderful thing. But everything changes, you know. You can't sustain the excitement of a moment. So I think about that a lot because it it really I really let it land. It was really fun. And I didn't think it was going to change my life, you know, but it was so cool. And then it was just what it was. The impermanence of that excitement and the letting go and remembering it for what it was. And I remember writing in my journal at one point to, um, I was thinking about letting go a lot. And um, at one point, it became, don't, it's not about letting go of, it's letting go into. I mean, I still have that intention of letting go into my life now, my life as it is in this moment, and not living in the past. I reflect on the past a lot, and I learn a lot from that. Oh, Hillary's mother sent me a message, and her husband had died a while ago, and, and she, I never met her, and she told Hillary to tell me not to get caught in regret, and I really appreciate that message, actually, because regret comes up, like not being in the room when he died, you know. Hillary Illich, another Hoffman Process teacher, and her mo- mother wrote you a note saying, don't get stuck in regret. No, she just told Hillary to tell me because Hillary and I were talking a lot at that point. And um, Hillary was a great support for me at, while Jimmy was dying and after. And yeah, and so she said, my mom told me to tell you, don't get stuck in regret. And you remember that, huh? Oh, yeah, because that is a trap <laughs> for sure. And it's, it's, a, it's kind of an easy trap to fall into, I think. And, you know, I've regretted things, but I tend to um, practice self-compassion. Barbara, how, when you taught the process after Jimmy passed, how did teaching it support your healing? I think being, again, that practice of love that, you know, I'm kind of practiced in teaching the process. So, so it was something I definitely something I could do. And I had a place had a focus for the love. And I was curious about what it would be like in teaching. I try to be self-revealing in service of the student. So if it's not in service of the student, I, my intention is only to reveal myself when it's really in service of them. And so there were times, you know, I think my small group knew my husband had died, and there would be things that I would, would share that I hoped were appropriate 
to what we were working on at the time that would, would serve the students. So that was a kind of balancing act, <laughs> you know, because I, I could talk, you know, at, at that point. It was only a few months after, and I, I, I could talk about things, but I didn't want to do it, like, for myself. <laughs> but I could talk to my colleagues about what was going on also. And I stayed, I didn't, I didn't go into compassion, the, the visualization. I stayed out of the room. And I mean, at times I were like in breaks or something. I remember, I think I was teaching with Regina and I sort of cried in her arms and, you know, people were great. My colleagues were great. So I could take little crying breaks. <laughs> Barbara, what's it like to reflect on Jimmy's passing? and your journey post his death? It's a lot of different things. So right now, it's, I'm just kind of curious and what comes up. Sometimes, you know, I write, I do journaling, and, I, and I, I've been using the quadrinity check a lot since Jimmy died. I don't know if I'm going to answer your question directly. However you answer it is fantastic. <laughs> okay. So sometimes it's about learning something about relationship because sometimes I'll reflect on stuff in our, things that happened in our relationship and I, and I get a different perspective. And so I learn more about myself or about him. Sometimes I, I've seen even so much more clearly how kind he was with me and with others and but but how kind he was really with me and how supportive and i don't know that i even knew that before that i really consciously recognized how much he did for me and then sometimes i reflect on things and we were very um like kinesthetically connected you know one of the things i love to do is just sit next to him on the couch like feel his thigh against my thigh and not talk necessarily, but just feel each other's presence. And, and then I think of that and I, it's, that's a little sad, you know, I, or I get, I get sad. I feel sad. Then I feel like I miss that, you know, I miss that. And I also am very, very grateful that I had it. He was very, embodied you know so that was lovely so there are things that bring up missing and gratitude and learning and sadness yeah i was just thinking about the sadness right next to the appreciation the gratitude uh, next to a little bit of regret next to some longing all of this in a soup of feelings and thoughts and when i when i was talking to this person earlier i you know we were talking about how much i am very relational i'm not an extrovert but i love relationship and i've been married twice and i loved my relationship with my first husband even though it didn't work out. But we stayed connected, and we stayed friends until he died. But I don't know how to move forward. 
in that realm, I must say. Say more there. Well, you know, it's a, we're still being cautious, and it's been through the pandemic. And I, I actually have never been. I'm like great at dating. I don't know how I ended up in these two relationships. <laughs> they just happened. So I don't know how to make anything happen. So I have done a little bit online kind of stuff, but I don't have much faith in it. How is that experience to be back, or, or not even back online because... No, not back online. <laughs> not for dating. I've never done... It's abstract. You know, so somebody sends a nice note or something, and then I don't know who they are, and then I send something to them, and they don't really know who I am. It just feels abstract. And so then I often back off from it, and I don't follow through. I don't know. Somebody reached out to me a few weeks ago, and I was really I was busy. I was teaching both two weekends in a row, and I haven't answered. And I was really thinking about that. Like, here's something I really I I really care about, actually, but I'm haven't been having that much faith in it. So, well, Barbara, thinking about you claiming this relational person that you are i'm so relational and then also saying one of the things i loved about my relationship with jimmy is the kinesthetic aspect feeling our bodies next to each other sitting next to each other on the couch on the floor and uh, online dating feels the opposite of that so abstract so so it's a challenge you know and i've i've had coffee with few people but i've had interactions i think i had interactions with someone who was kind of it wasn't really a person i or i don't know what it was he wrote great letters though um <laughs> so it was fun that way but that's the thing you're not it's not that invested you know then i then they disappeared well then it, i think he got taken off the site it was funny. I mean, it was peculiar because I had really enjoyed writing and reading his letters, but he wasn't a real person to me. And he wasn't, I think, he wasn't a real person. I guess that happens on the sites. Some phishing scam. Never asked for anything, but who knows? And then people just disappear, they write beautiful things, and I respond, and then they're gone off the site. So it's hard to be invested in it, you know, hard to believe in it. Barbara, I'm uh, so grateful for your transparency and just realness around life with Jimmy. And I had all these questions, and I think we're going to have to do a part two with Barbara Comstock where we talk about Bob and talk about the early stages of the process. And that feels way too important not to do. And yet this episode also feels deeply important to share with people what grieving looks like and feels like. And you've really taken us through, through that journey. Well, thank you. And there were, true. there were certain things that I initiated kind of early on that I would always 
I would walk every day and I would meditate every day. That's been really important to me. And I went on a meditation retreat not too long ago. Just having that support in myself and using, uh, using the quadrinity check. And I would hand the pen to Jimmy. I didn't know what it meant to do that, but I just sort of, it would be Jimmy writing. I'd be holding the pen, obviously. And I just write whatever came to me. And it's all, there are all these things we can do to support ourselves that I did to support myself. I'm lucky to have kind of lived in this world in this way for so long that many things came to me when Jimmy died or when he was dying, that I had a lot of resources. Internal and external resources. Barbara, thank you for your time, and I'm excited for part two. (laughs) Okay, thanks, Drew. Thank you for listening to our podcast. My name is Liza Ingrassi. I'm the CEO and president of Hoffman Institute Foundation. And I'm Raz Ingrassi, Hoffman teacher and founder of the Hoffman Institute Foundation. Our mission is to provide people greater access to the wisdom and power of love. In themselves, in each other, and in the world. To find out more, please go to hoffmaninstitute.org.